I might just be doing this whole thing spread eagle. Full disclosure, like you're you're in my yoohoo right now. Like you're the, the, the iPad is right in between. I think the that's legs. a really good contrast to the very serious Steve Jobs turtleneck you're sporting. <laughs> Thank you, prayer hands. Um, Classy on top, just trash let's on see. the bottom. Let's look, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> This is what I wanted to say is that I was working for Paperless Post and all it's so sad because all of these weddings are being canceled, like just fucking miserable. But my favorite thing that I've seen so far is a couple was sending a wedding postponement through our site. And Mm -hmm. what they said was they said the title of the card was love is in the air, dot, dot, dot. But also so is a virus. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh that's that. cute which i'm like hell yeah that's so great and then I, but like the amount of bar bat mitzvahs i canceled the amount of weddings i've helped cancel showers i actually just threw my friend a surprise shower last night it was so fun it was it went really well she was not expecting it she was so confused but i think she really enjoyed it it was really nice Good. we played games on zoom so we had like baby prices right which i won I'm very happy to say, but it was really nice. Oh, but you're, you've always been good at uh, baby shower games. You're competitive. You've got that edge. It's an edge. It's it could that could be a disadvantage just depending on who you're playing. Because I it's it's just you know, not many people love a competitive baby shower <laughs> attendee. attendee. That's all I want <laughs> is a fight to break out. Quinn's yours was good because actually I'm upset because I won it. No, I think Jordan won it, but didn't she give like a Le Creuset or something? Yeah, to a Jordan. Dutch oven. I want one now desperately because I want to bake bread because I can bake yeah. bread in a Le Creuset. So I'm a little bit. You know hurt. what? It wasn't. Uh, it it would have disappointed you. The reason we were giving it away to begin with was that it's a. It was a disappoint. Oh God, Jordan listens to this. I'm so sorry, Jordan. But it was a disappointing <laughs> piece of a. Uh, hardware which is to say you could not put it over a burner you could only put it in the oven what for a dutch oven Have you ever heard of something so ridiculous who needs a thing that does that well, that's what we call a casserole dish yes yeah, so but it was a, ca- a you lost out a, on a casserole but dish. a casserole dish it shouldn't be that heavy because i remember putting it the the game dear readers was that we had to put the baby Bjorn and we had to carry the cast iron and whoever did it faster won. And I made a very, I made an incredible showing. I'm just going to say it. I killed it. I did really well. Okay. You have a lot to be proud of. I have a lot to be proud of. I have no regrets because I didn't come there to make friends. I came there to win baby shower games. And I, I and she left with no friends and no prizes. So, so I, f- <laughs> I was succeeded in then not making friends, but I failed in the winning and in that, that was hard. But also I didn't I actually gave up winning the cast iron the skillet or whatever the fuck it was. The casserole dish. The overly heavy casserole dish. Because no casserole dish should be that fucking heavy. Correct. A Dutch oven? Make it heavy, baby. Casserole? No. But I didn't have a home at the time. So bringing a casserole, bringing up a heavy casserole dish to your sisters just didn't. I was staying with your sister at the time. Just didn't make much sense, to be honest. No. No. 
You were staying at her- Brianna's? Yeah, I live at the Posner's exclusively. Huh. Well, <laughs> does your mom know she we're has... We're a really attractive family. I, I was who staying... Who could blame you? Who could blame me? I was staying at Brianna's place, and then when she moved to a new place, I just moved there with her. <laughs> I like your style, Carrie. Let someone else make the hard choices. I'm hitching my wagon to the Posner family. Oh, my God. Do you know what's uh, funny? You know what I thought of the other day? Huh? It has been ages and episodes since we have said the words, hi, I'm Quinlan Posner. Oh, my God. <laughs> By the way, that's Quinlan Posner speaking. And that's Carrie Ipema. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to Truly Darkly Creepily. <laughs> How did that feel? I missed it. We had the creep. I missed the creeply. Yeah, I, I did. Mean, it did. I'm going to be honest. That didn't feel good. It doesn't feel good. You oh, know what? It felt honest. It felt honest, but it didn't feel good because when we're together, listen, we're we're looking at each other right now, but we're not in the same room. And when we can breathe together, the creeply is much better. Yeah, the, yeah, the whole thing's better. Also, we're out of practice because we f- keep forgetting to uh, be professionals. Well, dear readers, relax, okay? Get off our nuts because it's been four weeks of us recording remotely. Yeah. And that's yeah. providing its own... Oh, my gosh, you got, dear readers. Challenges. There has been... I've like had like DEFCON 20 May Day situations where I've been like, Quinn... The episode is dead. It was not working on my end. But for some reason, it's working on your... It's the weirdest fucking thing. But I want to be very clear. You can hear everything. In the editing that you're doing for the last episode, everything sounds okay. Yes. Ugh, phew. I mean, yeah. We're learning It's a heart now. attack waiting to happen. You guys... We're, we we didn't come here to be producers, and now we are. So, we're super duper producers. We're super. So give us a quarter. <laughs> give us a quarter. That's, nap. A, that's just another Patreon hint, guys. <laughs> that's just a We'd not love- so sly hint. We. I thought that Whatever. was good. That was great. What stories did we do last time? No, like who went first? I know that's what it'll remind me of. What went? You first. know what? I went first. Did you? Yeah. All right. Well, you then did it's my turn. Hartman. And you went second. I did do Phil Hartman. That was dork. And I did Carol, uh, the death of Carol Pacman. The cruise. So this, the guy that faked his own death on the boat. That's so good. He sounded like a real turd. Turd nerd. Total turd bird. Total turd bird. Okay, so I got this story idea. I was trolling the gram, as I want to do. And I believe Katie Couric posted about this case. Whoa. I know. It's about, have you heard the case of um, Yardley Love? No. Okay, so this, I'm kind of breaking with tradition, and I'm going with, she's more of a contemporary situation. Um, How unlike you. I know. I got a lot of information from Wikipedia, ABC, like a lot, CBS, a lot of those guys. So just a little background about Yardley. Hold on, let me... Make this. Let me tell bigger. you also that you're when you're moving something, y- you're getting some feedback, like, like you're moving your mic. Oh, this is on here. That's it's not what on it my is. mic. Got it. Got yeah. it. Got it. Got it. Turtleneck feedback. <laughs> Turtle power. 
<laughs> and away we go. go okay so Yardley Love was born July 17th 1987 she was born in Baltimore Maryland and she was an athlete she's super cute she played field hockey and lacrosse um, her senior year in high school she was all American or all country I don't know the difference between all American and all country but she got all country she's an all country lacrosse player hmm by the way, should I go forth and say lax? I don't think that's right, but whatever. Here we are. She was a oh, lacrosse. Yeah. LA. Because well, yeah. we all know, like, did you have an idea of a lax player in your high school? You went to an artsy high school. Uh, yeah, there was no sports in my high school, but I played lacrosse in middle school. Wait, you did? Yeah. Can it's you, hard. Were you good? No, I was never good at sports. It's uh, painful, painful to talk about, painful to remember because I went to a private middle school and I was the least popular girl in the popular group. Mm. Um, Do you know what I mean? That was, it was the five popular girls and I was one of them, but I was the least popular girl of the popular girls and they all (laughs) were really good at uh, lacrosse and field hockey and I was not. Um, but I was the funny one, so it was pretty, you know, chill. You don't know, it's funny that you say that. I think I was never considered funny growing up. My friends from home and my family will attest to that information that they all are like, Carrie's not funny at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they're like, Carrie, you're an idiot. But I, I found humor when I, 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 I danced, you know, growing up. But I was, I was in a very good ballet school, but I was like the worst one there. Like mm-hmm. I was, I'm very, I was very good at dancing, but I wasn't enough. I wasn't good enough to be like a full professional dancer. I had to be, you know, I, that was never, I guess that was a possibility, but then I got boobs and that all changed. But it was like, I was good at dancing, but I was the worst in this really great program. Right. Right. And I found that it was there that I discovered comedy because it was a way that I could make fun of it and then still be well liked Right. Independent of not being the best. Totally. And it sounds like you had a very similar experience. Yeah. Coping mechanisms. <laughs> For sure. Coping mechanisms. Lena one. So back to Yardley. Reynolds Love is her full name. Um, so she went to the University of Virginia. Um, she majored in political science and she minored in Spanish. And while she was at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, which it's hard to even say that. <laughs> town without thinking of yeah fully racist bigoted protests this is before that obviously it's 2010 is when this story really takes place but she also played lacrosse and lacrosse is a d1 uh university of virginia is a d1 school so it's an incredible lacrosse program that she got into she loved lacrosse she started playing it at five years old she was incredibly talented She was a member of Kappa Alpha Theta, a sorority. She started in nine of her 16 games in 2009. And in her very first game, she scored a goal, which I don't know much about lacrosse, but I'm going to say it's like probably like hockey where there's not a very high scoring game. Is that accurate? Yes. Okay. So her first game, she scored a a goal. A lot of 2-0 action, you know, at the end of the day. I mean, it just feels like, (gasps) you know, anyway. Yeah. Okay. So we're also going to look at George Wesley Hughley V. What a name. What a name. That's Um, a mouthful. I think it's Hughley or is it Hughley? 
Or is it Bigly? It's Bigly. <laughs> it's just, well, I don't know. Every time I see a name with a number at the end, have you? do you remember that line from Sex in the City? Dear readers, <laughs> I know this obviously because I have a One Woman Sex in the City show that you can stream at onewomansatc.com. Go for it. But they <laughs> in the Promotion. show. Promotion. Thank you. In the show, they were like, don't you realize the higher the number, the worse at sex they are? <laughs> The higher the number. Oh, the third, the fifth, the... Okay. (laughs) The higher the number, the worse in bed. So George Hughley was hugely... I think it's got to be Hughley. Um, He's born in D.C. September 17th, 1987. His parents subsequently divorced. He first went to an all-boys school, and he was also a lacrosse player, and he played football. He was the quarterback senior year of high school, and he decided to go also to University of Virginia and play lacrosse there. So we have these two lacrosse players, okay? They seem cool. mm, (laughs) She's great. Okay. He sucks. Spoiler alert. He fucking sucks. We're not going to feel bad for this fucker. Because a lot of kids that played lacrosse with me were... See, I feel like the lacrosse that I know, the the lax that I'm aware of is they... it's very rare that I hear about a man who plays lacrosse that I'm like, what an upstanding gentleman. Correct. Like, wasn't there a big, like, there was a big rape scandal for lacrosse teams. I want to say, like, in one of the Carolinas or something. Like, I'll buy that. Yeah, right? Like, you can buy that they're, they have, like, a, 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 a line into the roofie. <laughs> right. You know, but then, they, you know, Brock was a swimmer. You just uh, don't let your, this is a PSA, don't <laughs> let your kids play sports. And that, again, kids are is nice. what you came here from here. Is That's what you came here. If you do Cooking theater, class, dance, theater. theater, dance, comedy, improv, okay? I should don't let you, your kids do improv. Don't let your kids do improv. They're just going to be set up for disappointment. But more importantly, don't let your kids do sports. Rapists reside there. Get out of there. Get out of there. So the two met their freshman year. Both of the lacrosse teams hung out. And so the two met and they eventually started dating. George had a sordid past. So in 2007, he was charged with underage alcohol possession in Florida. It's Florida, baby. 2008, he was arrested for public drunkenness and resisting arrest. And he threatened to kill the police officer until the police tased him. Which I'm just going to say, this boy is white. So he probably would be dead if he was not white. So hello, white privilege. Only Um, he and Luanne DeLesseps can get away with that kind of behavior. Those are the only two. But (laughs) if you noticed, both of them, white. Uh, He received... Quite. So in 2008, but like he literally threatened to kill the police officer when he was fully shit faced, and they were like, "We'll just tase you." Yeah, that's um, fair. He received a suspended sentence of 60 days, six months of probation. He got a fine, community service, and he participated in a drug rehab program. So it is a rule at University of University of Virginia that you have to disclose these issues if you are an athlete. Right? They try to. Make sure that people coming into their program, you know, there's no sort of they're they're trying to protect the rest of their student body, right? But he did not disclose any of these incidences with his with the with the University of Virginia. He majored in anthropolo- an- 
<laughs> he majored in the store anthropology. Uh, <laughs> he sold a lot of cute cardies um, and some great candles. But And he majored in anthropology. Um, in the 2010 season, he was a midfielder for the men's lacrosse team. The two dated for two years, and they had a very on-again, off-again relationship. And he would get more and more aggressive. And specifically, alcohol would trigger his aggression. The way they talk about it is, it feels very, I hate to say textbook, but it does feel very textbook in terms of probably Yardley not taking it seriously or not realizing how bad it was because she was in it and realizing Mm -hmm. how awful this person was and how she didn't deserve to be treated like this. But they were on again, off again. At one point in 2009, Hughley attacked a teammate because he heard that she had kissed him. They, They had broken up by that May. I think he had attacked her. There are reports that he had choked her and she said enough is enough and she walked the fuck away. Which I'm so proud that she did that. Get out of there, Yardley. Get out of there. This guy's bad fucking news. But I think, you know, when people are in these situations, they think it's, it just breaks my heart because it's just. I think in college also, you're seeing a lot of bad behavior. And so, um, it's easy to turn a blind eye and everyone's drinking too much. Yes. And this everyone's guy had on their a own making problem. bad decisions. So one Absolutely. person making a bad decision doesn't look as serious as it would 10 years down the line when you're like, now you're a fucking adult and you're doing this. Um, but also although you do see a lot of people don't change whatever they're they're doing in college remains an issue through life. Yeah. But also you're seeing that she's 18 years old and he and 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 I don't know, for me, when I first fell in love, I was like 18 or 19 years old. And that's super new and exciting. And your partner can do no wrong. You just have these rose colored glasses that you're like, I guess this is what love is, right? It's like, if this is the first time you're feeling love in some way, I think it's easy to turn a blind eye and ignore the horrible behavior that you're being, that you're enduring, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, So it was a couple weeks before graduation, specifically 20 days before graduation. And Yardley had planned to move to New York. She was going to graduate. And on May 2nd, her and her team were returning from their final last season game from Northwestern. It was an away game before they headed to the um, NCAA tournament for lacrosse. So she's 20 days from getting her diploma. So they come, they go out that day, May 2nd, Yardley and her friends go out. They go to a local bar, as you do your senior in college. And then they went to a birthday party with a bunch of friends. And she was feeling tipsy. So she was like, you know what? I'm going to stay in. Responsible choice. Her roommate was going to go out and continue to party. And the roommate left the front door open, which probably wasn't that big of a deal. I mean, people lock your doors. But I think it was a college town. I do think based if you've heard our very first episode, I think colleges provide this very false sense of safety. Right. Definitely. So in the very early hours of May 3rd, 2010, the Charlottesville police were called at 215 in the morning. She was found completely unresponsive and pronounced dead immediately. 
her roommate called and said that she had alcohol poisoning or that she had an alcohol overdose. That was the call that was made. But detectives came in and they noticed there was blood everywhere and that she had endured physical injuries. So they quickly pointed, and rightfully so, to George Hughley. He lived right next door. And obviously, once they started investigating into what was going on and some of the actions that he had taken, it quickly pointed to him. So the next day, he was charged with murder and was arrested. Two days after that, he got his lawyer, and his lawyer claimed that Miss Love's death was not intended, but an accident with a tragic outcome. Bullshit. Okay, so eventually... George Hughley waived his Miranda rights and admitted to assaulting love and in a confession that was taped. He claimed he told his side of the story, which was that he kicked in her locked bedroom door so that it opened. He shook her and he hit her head on the wall repeatedly. He took then he then took her laptop with the intent to destroy it. When they went into his possessions, they found a computer, a notebook, socks, the bathroom and entry rugs, and a Virginia lacrosse shirt with a red stain. So this quickly escalated into a domestic violence. Why the fuck did he steal all her rugs? Probably because there was blood on it. Oh, so he was just... But they found blood everywhere when they came in They anyway. found blood everywhere else. I assume... He was like, this is the worst of it. So I'll... So he was super fucking drunk. So I'll... Oh, it was a drunk cleanup, of course. Okay. It was a that drunk cleanup. Sense. So, so he's just I'll, like, that clearly has blood. That has blood. All right. Good enough. So I'm trying. Okay. So I'm trying to think of where I should go. Okay. So here's his events that night that was based on his friends in his testimony that I'll get into later. But I think it's important to know. He went to a father-son golf tournament. Again, don't do sports. He went to a father-son golf tournament, and he was drink started drinking at 11 o'clock in the morning. So he was belligerently drunk all day. And this guy, obviously, he is easily – he's a his violence is triggered by alcohol, although I'm not going to blame it. He sounds like a fucking nasty guy. So he's drinking all day. He's out with his friends. He is drinking in his apartment after the tournament, he leaves and then comes back out and doesn't tell anybody really where he was or he had this story that he was at another friend's house, which they later realized was not the case, that he was actually committing this crime of assaulting and killing Yardley Love. He then goes back out to meet his friends and he hangs out the rest of the night and his friends say that he had he was dead in the eyes and his demeanor completely changed, which showed that he recognized his guilt right that he had yeah he knew what he had done he knew what he did what was also really jarring to me was that they also found that he was texting three other women throughout the night sending playful exchanges flirtatious exchanges plant emojis throughout the night and the like eggplant emojis and these uh like i can't even imagine Ugh. it just grosses me the fuck out right so as the investigators are investigating are doing what they are called they're invest if the investigators are <laughs> investigating so to know that they yeah thank you i'm very i don't know i have a way with words so the investigators are investigating the crime and it quickly the amount of domestic violence just like <laughs> rushes at them right 
they found out that months before the the fatal attack, he attacked her when he was drunk when they were at an away game in North Carolina, so much so that he was super drunk and he just didn't remember hitting her. And it was so violent that um, it was broken up by the other lacrosse players that they were visiting from the University of North Carolina. And the police were never called. Right. Um, There was another drunken assault. And I think it was either that one or the other one where he apparently choked her that she called off the relationship. And after they had broken up that final time, he sent her threatening text messages and emails, um, including the words, I should have killed you. Jesus. So after he was arrested, he was held without bond and he was charged with first degree murder, which, as we know, is with the intent to kill. But he walked Mm -hmm. in there intending to kill her. So they added more charges. They added a felony murder, robbery, burglary, entering the house with the intent to commit a felony and grand larceny for the computer. The grand jury indicted him. On my birthday, thank you, the grand jury indicted him on April 18th, 2011 on first-degree murder and the felony murder charge. His trial date was set for February 6th, not your birthday, nope. 2012. Some people believed that what was hard was in the trial, they were, he had fully admitted to killing her, but the question really stood was, was it voluntary manslaughter, which as we know is like a crime heat of the like crime of passion as they call it or did he go in intending to harm her and so that was like a lot of the defense and prosecution were going back and forth about that issue what was really hard was listening to the scientists where they looked at her brain and how her injuries were sub, uh, were sustained mm-hmm. is that the right word they were injuries were sustained yeah i'm going yeah. with it we're going with it the police believed that after she was knocked unconscious, if someone had called the police, she might have had a chance of survival. Oh, her brain was twisted one way and one way and the other way. They what? couldn't clear like her brain because of the he hit her head against the wall. Her brain was moving in Jesus. her skull. They couldn't clarify. They couldn't fully determine if it was a punch, a shake, or a fall, or anything else that killed her. And so when the defense attorney came up, they said, oh, maybe she died in part because of she was on her prescription for Adderall and she had a blood alcohol level of 0.14. But then other scientists came up and they were like, yo, that's not a lethal level. You were like, that other scientists came up and they were like, every single college student is on Adderall and has that blood alcohol every minute of every day. Yeah. Like she, and also the fact that she she had blunt force trauma, that is her cause of death. The defense attorney is saying this is a tragic accident, that he didn't mean to, that it was a crime of passion. They even claimed that, you know, he shook her and she was unconscious, but it was the fall when she fell off her bed that killed her. But then friends of Hughley's from the the lacrosse team came up and testified, and they said he was a menacing drunk on the night of the murder. As I said, he was belligerent. He drank all day, and he came back lying about what he was. And I'll repeat it. They said there was a change in demeanor, a blank look on his face, yeah, which again showed consciousness of guilt. But he, they also he claimed his defense claimed that he was just too drunk to plot a murder. 
uh, to the too final drunk to argument. murder. He didn't do it that craftily. It's not like he went in and set up like a Rube Goldberg machine that killed her. Like <laughs> that implies that you have to be like, like a maniacal genius to be guilty of first degree murder. If he walked in feeling like I'm gonna fucking kill her. He kicked Ugh, in the door and beat the shit out of her. Like, you you can mm-hmm. be pretty drunk and do those things. And also, he had beat her up before. So I don't know where that falls in it, um, where it's like, oh, maybe he just got carried away that time. But it's like, oh, I, I feel like he's I guilty think... because he's been beating her up for yeah, years. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think that a history of domestic abuse should, should then ever serve excuse. as an excuse for the murder. Right? Like, um, he shouldn't get to say, it was just my hobby. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> so the jury took nine hours to deliver a guilty verdict of second-degree murder in grand larceny, which I liked this part of the story because so oftentimes we, when we research, we're met with just complete bullshit, hmm. angry things. Then they took two more hours and they recommended a 26-year sentence, which is 25 for murder and one year for grand larceny. So they ruled out the heat of passion because they that categorizes it as voluntary manslaughter because of his videotaped confession. He lied at every opportunity first and he didn't tell the truth on several occasions. So he just wasn't credible. He was lying. He was evading the truth. He was evasive. In May of that year, they released his 64-minute video, which he told of her death, to everyone. So anyone could, anyone can look at his confession. I stumbled upon some of the videos. To be honest, I didn't want to watch his confession. That to me feels, I, I, I just, I didn't want to give him any of my time, you know? Just you know, 30 to 40 minutes of your podcast is enough. 30 to 40 minutes of your podcast, but I don't want to fucking hear him cry. I don't ca- I don't want to hear him yeah. feel remorseful. He fucking killed her. In it, he says, I may have grabbed her neck and maybe I shook a little bit. Bitch, she didn't fucking shake a little bit. You killed someone. So at one point when they say that she's dead, he reacts in disbelief and says, kill me. Because of the raw emotion seen in this tape, the jury was convinced that Love's murder was not totally premeditated, which is why it's a second-degree murder. He was formally sentenced to 23 years in prison, 23 for murder, and one year for the larceny, which can serve concurrently, so he'll only be in prison for 23 years. They then appealed based on two reasons. One was the right to counsel, which was... I feel like it's such bullshit because basically one of his lawyers got the stomach flu and missed a day of trial. Oh, and they were please. like, we have a day off. And the, the judge is like, no, fucking keep going. And so they thought that that could possibly benefit his appeal. And then they also said that juror 32 should have been excluded because of doubts on jurors impartiality. Appeal denied. He is in a level four of six level prisons. Which, I don't know, there were levels to prison. There was, like, high security. But I guess this is just in Virginia. There's like Six a, is the worst? Six is or highest. Or six is the chillest? One is chillest, I believe. Six is highest. Got it. So, four years into his sentence, his mother spoke out. And his mother did an interview, and she fully believes it was voluntary manslaughter. Which I'm not going to... This is his mother. She's going to defend him. She's yeah, going to want the no best. Like, I'm not... But what was really peculiar about her interview was she, they asked how he's doing. And she said, you know, he has a roommate and 
he goes, he has a job and he's going to school. But it was just so weird to have her be like, well, it's not a roommate, it's a cellmate. He's in fucking prison. He doesn't have a job. Like, he's in fucking prison. But the way she was saying it, to me, felt like her normalizing it for her own self. I wasn't mm-hmm. totally offended, but I was a little offended. Because I, when when she said he had a roommate, there was that just something. That needs to be of- kept away from women and alcohol. And he is being kept away from those things. She should be... Uh- Sleeping better at night, knowing that uh, he can't hurt anyone else. Well, it's also the first time his alcohol possession was in Florida, as he was fighting with his parents, I think, knew of his his violent tendencies and alcohol and his aggression whenever he drank. But again, I, I'm not going to blame the parents. This guy was a piece of shit. And yeah. he, you know. So his release date is May 30th, 2030. So in 10 years, he will be 42 years old. That's young. Second chance. That's That's, a second. I'm just saying, like, prove us all wrong, sir. Please do. So Yardley's mom, her name is Sharon. And as we've talked about in many of these, in many of these stories is a lot of times the families will take on a level of responsibility to do something with their tragedy, which I'm always really inspired by. And this is why I investigated this case. Sharon Love, she did what a lot of victims' families do. She filed a $30 million wrongful death suit against George. She filed another $30 million suit against the University of Virginia and the lacrosse coaches and the director of athletics claiming that they knew that there was an issue that this person was violent and aggressive and had a drinking problem and it was their responsibility to suspend him remove him from the team um, or ask him to seek counseling for alcohol and treatment and things like that so which I think is a fair request but the Love family dropped both suits Eventually, the University of Virginia president said at her vigil, at Yardley's vigil, my hope for Yardley and for you is that her dying inspires an anger, a sense of outrage that engenders determination here and wherever Yardley's name is recognized that no woman, no person in this place, this community, this state, our nation need either fear for her safety or experience violence for any reason. This is where I wanted to go into why I did the case um, or why I investigated was Sharon Love, her mother. She went on to create the One Love Foundation. The reason it's called One Love is Yardley's last name is Love. And on her lacrosse jersey, she wore a one. And the foundation raises awareness about domestic violence and especially relationship violence. So One Love has educated around 1 million young people on the signs of unhealthy relationships and how to have healthy love. So their goal is to improve it for the next generation. They pair films and discussions. By the end of March of this year, they I believe they revealed their online program. And many universities and colleges have required their student athletes to take courses through the One Love Foundation, and they are currently looking to expand to more colleges across the country to make their workshops about relationship violence mandatory to all student-athletes. They've been in the news quite often talking about their mission statement, which is to talk about domestic violence amongst college students and a younger generation. So that is the story of Yardley Love. And if you know anyone 
there are there are many outlets to seek help. So please do that. You're not alone. Yeah, that's the story of Yardley Love. Wow, so sad. So sad. But it's good to know that her mom's super badass doing things about it. It's and just, trying to help other people. Yeah, right. I mean, it's always so humbling in these moments to like for these families to have to take this tragedy and turn it to action because you just don't want them to experience that tragedy at all. And this poor yeah. girl. And, it, and he, it's also just really pertinent right now with all of the stuff going on with domestic violence right now with quarantine and people are having a quarantine with their abusers and they're finding themselves in a situation even more dangerous where right. it's difficult to seek help and to know where you would go times totally. like these. Yeah. College lacrosse players, fuck them all. Don't in do one sports. way or another, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That was dork-sided. Dork-sided. That um, was dork-sided. Well, I'm glad to tell you that I have um, a story that is true, but it lacks enough darkness and creepiness to make it a little bit of a fun caper. Ooh. Yeah, let's go. Let's go on. Wait, this I'm wild so glad ride. you're second now. Um, yeah, it actually, it's kismet. Um, so I got my information from a badass New York Times article, the Smithsonian, and a more recent article written in Vanity Fair. And I'm going to tell you about the Star of India heist. You you don't know anything about it, do you? Wait, no. Yeah, is this going to be? It, is this? Are you pitching me a show idea? Are no. you pitching me a movie? No, no, no. This is an amazing story. I'm just going to dive in because do it. It's better, best told by telling it. One of those. You mean like um, an investigator invests in a story exactly. is better and told a, by and a telling story. Ought to tell the story. Potato, as Matt would say, potato, turtle. You know exactly. <laughs> fine, fine, fine. So. Where are we? We're, it's on October 30th. Ooh, the day before Halloween. Ooh, so um, it's already very spooky. It's, yeah, there's that's going to count for most of the spookiness, <laughs> be forewarned. Um, it's 1964, and a call comes in at 10 a.m. to the 20th precinct on the Upper West Side. <gasps> and they're like, listen, listen, guys, there was a break-in at New York City's Museum of Natural History. Isn't this so cinematic already? I love it. I feel like I'm watching Brad Pitt. Yeah. You know. Do, okay, so and, Brad, yep. Pitt's, Brad Pitt can play the first guy, which is okay. Detective Jack McNally. That looks like him. That totally is him. Right? That's his name. Anyway, and he and his colleagues head right over to find that the Hall of Gems has been broken into. It's a total mess. There's a bunch of display cases shattered, cabinets broken, and contents gone. So within an hour, the press is at the museum, and everyone's freaking out. And sort of the biggest point of focus in this heist is that the Star of India is gone, which was a 563-carat sapphire the size of a fucking golf ball. Oh, also the Star of India was mined in Ceylon. C-E-Y-L-O-N. Would you say Ceylon? Ceylon. So it was mined 300 years ago. 
it's a big fucking deal. The other but like, stuff- should New York be having this gem? This is the real question. Well, clearly it- not. They didn't take very good care of it. Um, yeah. But they had the Hall of Gems had a bunch of cool stuff in it, including that was like their headliner. But then they had the Eagle Diamond, which was discovered in 1876 by a farmer in Wisconsin. They also had this amazing. The Eagle Diamond was discovered in Wisconsin? Yes. Is there diamonds in Wisconsin? Should we be mining diamonds in Wisconsin? Should I be? Is that what I should be doing? Change your life. Done. There was also a socialite uh, that had given um the museum like this amazing ruby that was unearthed in burma in the 1930s so those are some of the headliners but then there there was just a bunch of stuff that got taken a bunch of gems security there was super shoddy oh my god what this is what i wrote security was a joke but no one was laughing (laughs) (laughs) um how drunk were you when you did this research? <laughs> Security a joke. And guess what? No one lolling. No one was laughing. Um, I wish I could blame it on being drunk. Um, unfortunately, that has not been my state of affairs over the last uh, three months. <laughs> anyway, because of budget cuts, they had like reduced their staff. There was only eight security guards in the museum that night. And there was this older guy that would like walk by the Hall of Gems every now and then. And he wouldn't even go in. He'd like sh- kind of shine a flashlight in. And inside then just job. Keep, I'm saying inside walking. job. You'll find out. The alarms on the hall's display cases had stopped working, including the trip alarm on the Star of India. It was just like... Uh, the batteries had been in there. No one ever like changed the batteries. So they were just like melted and old and were over. People... Like, it was like the laziest. I mean, it's the 30s, right? Or 60s. It's, it's 64. The 60s. It's 64. People were busy. Do you know what I mean? People were, it was Andy Warhol, baby. It was Bob Dylan. They had other crimes. Everybody was smoking pot. They had other crimes they were dealing with. Not the star of India. It does feel like everyone was smoking pot for this to have happened. Um, (laughs) The museum says that the gem's value that was missing was $410,000, which would be $3.3 million today. They, but they were like historical artifacts, not just gems. So it was just about also they were priceless. They were irreplaceable. And for several months after this robbery, New York City and the tabloids were obsessed with what they sort of labeled or deemed the heist of the century. So let's get into the guys that did this. Um, a few weeks earlier, Jack Murphy, Alan Kuhn and Roger Clark, who are three totally hot beach boys in their 20s drove up from Miami in a white Cadillac. They booked a penthouse suite at the Cambridge House Hotel on West 86th Street and they fucking raged. They threw parties. They were living it up. And you know those mini bar bills are like no joke, right? Yeah. They were just like drinking the $18 mini vodka, whatever. They did not care. They were at the time robbing other people's hotel rooms and bar patrons to finance a lot of this. But that was sort of how they all lived their life. Um, Well, that was Jack and Alan's cup of tea. So we'll sort of talk about what's their history. Murphy was the only child of a telephone company lineman and a housewife. And he grew up in Oceanside, California, during sort of the formative years of longboard surfing which he actually helped pioneer in the East Coast in the 50s by opening up a shop in Florida. 
So he drops out of college as a freshman, goes to Miami, surfs, teaches tennis and swimming at swanky hotels. And he also performs as a trick diver in hotel aquatic shows. At this time, there are these local hustlers and thieves that are robbing mansions all alongside the uh, intercoastal waterway. And Murphy is like, that's cool. I want to be friends with you guys. And pals like starts to be buddy buddy with them and kind of gets a steady gig where he would swim the jewels to a getaway car on the mainland that whatever the booty was they got from the homes because they're coastal homes. And Whoa. so he's like doing doing some crime stuff. And a year before going to New York City to commit this crime, he is a world-class surfer and he took first place in Virginia Beach competition, which was the precursor to the East Coast Surfing Championships. So he's a really good surfer. Alan Kuhn had kind of a more gritty childhood in West Grove, Miami. His father abandoned the family when he was a toddler. So his mom's a single mom and has him and his sister. And she's just working whatever job she can get to support them. But they're always poor. So he is interested in not being poor at a young age. And at 15, he gets arrested for breaking into neighbors' homes. Uh, But he's just sentenced to probation. He's a kid. And then later, he has a semester at Southern Illinois University, but then he enlists. And when his tour of duty ends, it's 1962, and he leaves the Key West Naval Air Station and heads to Miami Beach, gets a job as a swim instructor at the Casablanca Hotel. So now his life is starting to sort of align with his buddy, uh, Jack Murphy. Murphy. So this is about when they meet. One night, a bartender takes Alan Kuhn to a back room where a local jewel thief is nursing a wound, like from a bullet that grazed him. And the man says to Alan Kuhn, I just got shot by a police officer while trying to rob a coin store. I dare you to go finish the job. And Alan Kuhn climbs up the building and finds the hole in the roof that they had cut to rob the coin store and goes down a rope and cleans the place out and comes back and he's like, that was fucking cool. That was a thrill. Here's what you need to know about Alan. Alan never shied away from a double dog dare. He, yeah. Oh, did I mention it was a double dog dare? Yeah, that God was the real. Damn. He was like, I dare you. Double dog dare you. In Alan's case, <laughs> you really do get the feeling that robbing places was a lot about just the thrill the adrenaline um, well it and sounds like, like can they were i all, do it they it sounds like they were all kind of adrenaline junkies like i can't i feel like well they surf- weren't because well so here's the, the murphy and coon were they become friends and start working together and robbing places and they would get tip-offs like a bellman would tell them that there was a rich tourist that had just left their room or things like that and they would get master keys at most of the hotels somehow and they would go into people's rooms Damn. but when they go to this job they recruit a house painter roger clark to join them he's a native of meridian connecticut or Merid. i think that's how you say it clark had been a high school lifeguard before joining the navy After finishing his service, he kind of just did some nine to five work at a chemical factory. Then he went to Miami and he was just kind of doing gig work in Miami. And people that knew Roger said that he was like a really sweet guy that just got sucked in um, and that the other two guys were these professional criminals. And Roger was just like became friends with them and kind of like got swept up in it. And so 
all these guys, that's setting the scene. They're all in their white Cadillac, drove to New York, staying at a hotel partying. And Alan Coon's like, you know what we should do? We should rob the Natural History Museum. It's just a few blocks away. And they have like all this priceless shit in the gem room. And Jack Murphy's like, I don't know. Um, <laughs> we've been partying really hard in this town. Like we have kind of a high profile like we've been drawing a lot of attention to ourselves i don't know if we should like commit a heist but they go case out the museum and they see how shitty the security is and it just feels like the jewels are there for the taking it's just about if they have the balls to do it and then they also notice that the museum at night keeps the fourth floor windows open what and they're like at that point, Alan says he could hear the jewels talking to them, and they said, take us to Miami. So he said, well, let's take him to Miami. <laughs> um, and I'm like, cool. Like, would you rather hang out all day in a museum, or would you rather go to Miami with, like, three hot surfers in their 20s? I mean, I have an opinion. I'm married, I'm- so I would definitely go with the surfers. <laughs> I, I, you know, I've got no chances left. I love left. museum. But is it safe? <laughs> it sounds like the museum ain't safe. Like, I feel like you'd probably be safer with those three guys. Completely. So Jack Murphy's like, we can pull this off. Let's do it. He likened it to going bowling. Like, as in, we could have robbed the museum or gone bowling. Like, it was that chill to him. Um, Love that. And a, even though it was a heist, there was not this, like, elaborate scheme really behind it. It was almost on a whim. Like, they ended up drinking at a bar at the hotel. And they were like, yeah, let's do this. Jack says that I was probably ready for anything at that point. So when they rob the museum, Jack Murphy is wearing a dark green velour jacket, a turtleneck and corduroys. And when asked about that, he said, you've got to have a little flair. If you get arrested and end up on the news, you don't want to look like a schlub. (laughs) (laughs) They're just like cool. They were like cool dudes. Well, um, when you say, like, hot surfer dudes in their 20s, I'm like, they feel like... In the 60s. Yeah, in, the yeah. 60, in the 20s you and can 60s, kind of like, I feel like, what is it? Yeah, Brian Wilson so remember, will be, like, writing songs about him. Definitely. Um, so you remember that Roger Clark was not really, like... Mm-hmm. So he, his job, he basically drives them up in the Cadillac to the back of the museum. He drops them off. He's on a walkie-talkie. He's watching out for police. He's just, like, the silent partner in the whole thing. He's, like, the getaway car. He doesn't come along for, like, the crazy shenanigans. And Murphy re- recalls uh, Roger being, like, just a really quiet, cool guy that they trusted, very calm... But, you know, he was not in it the way they were. So Murphy and Kuhn take like an airline shoulder bag and a coil of rope and a pistol just in case. So to access it, they go, they enter a courtyard behind the building and they scale a tall iron fence because they're both kind of acrobatic. And they climb a fire escape to the fifth floor. Swimmers and acrobatic and a surfer. I know, I'm painting quite a picture. So they inch along a narrow edge up by the fifth floor, and Murphy said he almost fell off after they startled a flock of pigeons. They break into a darkened office, and from there they lower themselves to an open window in the fourth floor hall of gems, and they see the trip alarm on the Star of India display stand, and they see the batteries look corroded and dead. But still, it's like too good to be true. They definitely expected the alarm to go off, but then... 
nothing happens. (laughs) So one little problem they have is there's this really strong double paned glass on the display cases and they try to smash it with a rubber mallet but it's just super loud and doesn't smash into it so they end up using glass cutters and they do a circle which they cover in duct tape so that nothing uh so that like muffles the shattering Mm -hmm. and they time their work because they could kind of watch the guard's movement and know when he was coming again so they would work over the next few hours and they'd break a case, try to synchronize the smashing of it with airlines flying overhead or something. And then they would sweep the floor so that there was no glass on the floor. And they'd use a squeegee to gather up the gems. And the guard would come by and whatever, shine the light and everything looked normal in there. You couldn't tell the cases were broken. So around midnight, after gathering up like two dozen jewels, including the ones I mentioned, the diamond, the ruby, and the fucking star of India, they go back out the window and climb to the ground. And Jack Murphy says he slipped through the park around the museum and he saw a crowd of police officers and froze. And he realized it was not a response to the robbery, but just like a shift change for the (gasps) precinct. But he's carrying a bag of stolen jewels and a coil of rope on his shoulder. And two officers head toward him and he sees a guy walking his dog and he just goes over to the to the guy and like acting like he knows him. He's like, oh, good evening, officers. And they like give him a nod and just keep walking. Then he hails a cab on Columbus Avenue oh, and goes God. to the Metropole Cafe in Midtown to check out Gene Krupa's jazz band. Wait a minute. So he has like millions and millions of dollars of jewels and he just is like you know what there's a I band i want to check out this jazz band he says if God, he wound up going to he sons of vehicles yes 100 percent. he says if he wound up going to jail for it he wanted to party a little first so the next day who's to blame him murphy and coon pack the gems in this like yellow case and they give it to this woman janet Florkowitz, who's just started dating Alan Kuhn, she doesn't know what's in it. They're just like, here, take this on the plane. And they all get on the plane together. She didn't know she was carrying it. Oh, my God. So meanwhile, they've figured out what's going on at the museum. And the New York Daily News reports the crime touched off an international manhunt for a master burglar who'd written a chapter in criminal history that rivals anything in fiction. Guards at airports and seaports and at border crossovers were alerted. Interpol was asking to alert its far-flung operatives to search for the gems. But they were already in Miami. They're already in Miami. They've landed. So... Bonnie Lou Satura, who's Jack Murphy's girlfriend, picks them up at the airport, drives them back to Alan Coon's Brickell Avenue apartment. Alan pulls the curtains and he like sends Janet out because she doesn't fucking know what's going on. And they took out the jewels and they're like just looking at them with a flashlight. He said that the points in the sapphires resembled shooting stars. And he's like, when you'd roll them, boom, boom, boom. They looked like little explosions. So they're just like looking at their booty being like, this Why is rad. Why hasn't this movie been made? I don't know. I kind of think it must have been and I, we missed it or something. I don't know. I mean, obviously I missed all movies, but this feels like the fact that uh, it's it just, is a movie, right? Like it it's a fucking movie. Be. It has to be. So 
A vice and gambling plainclothes man named James Walsh hears from an informant who attended one of the boys' parties. And he says, I think I've got something for you. There are these three guys upstairs in this place spending money like wild. You'd think they were making it with a machine. And it was weird because he says that it happened right around, like right after the heist that the guy says it. And it just rubs the guy wrong. So they get a warrant and they give it to Detective Jack McNally. Remember Jack? Brad Pitt. Brad Mm -hmm. Pitt. He enters their penthouse suite, which at the time a penthouse suite was $525 a month, which is apparently a lot. Okay. I would would love that to be the price. Can I live there? Sign me Um, up. He goes inside the suite and there's marijuana. (gasps) No. Yes. A floor plan of the Natural History Museum. Okay, well, that feels careless that they left that Books behind. about precious stones. Wait a minute, you guys. The burglary tools and sneakers with glass stuck in them in the soles. Guys, that's so stupid. <laughs> it's like a cartoon that they didn't, like, clean anything up. And they just um, left it? So this search that they're doing is interrupted when who should walk into the hotel room but Roger Clark. No, wait, Roger. Wait, I got confused. I thought he went down there with him. He wasn't with them. He did not go to Miami. So under questioning, um, he had to fold like a leaf. He did. I mean, (laughs) for a short time, he denied any knowledge of it. But then he made a full admission to the part he played. And he said what about Coon and Murphy being accomplices. But later... Clark will say that he was the victim of police brutality to try to take Mm. back his confession, but he's indicted on charges of drug possession and possession of burglary tools. He pleads not guilty, and he's released at the time on a $12,000 bond. So the Manhattan police contact their Miami counterparts, because now they know that the boys are in Miami, and eight lawmen burst into the Brickell Avenue apartment. But Kuhn has already taken the jewels and hidden them in the hallway outside his apartment in the overhead ceiling. So they tear up his apartment, but they don't find anything. But Murphy and Kuhn spend several nights in Miami jail charged with interstate transportation of stolen property regardless. I guess they have enough to put them away for that for a few nights. But they are released on bail. And then they give like this press conference that's just them wisecracking and being Just kind of tools. Just kind of like, ha ha, <laughs> like, not good. So remember Kuhn's girlfriend, Janet F- Florkowitz? Mm-hmm. She confesses to involvement because she realizes what's going on. But then she recants. So she doesn't know what to do. She's a kid, by the way. She's like 18. They set her bail at 25000 which is the equivalent of 190000 today. Oh, my God. They say she's young and without mature judgment. And so she's at risk if freed on bail. So she ends up being in protective custody for three months. And her family members to this day say that the whole experience was just like harrowing for her. She was a naive teenager and they were essentially using her. Well, they so, gave her. They, I feel like they could be like, we didn't transport it. She carried it was her bag. A hundred percent. I mean, there's a reason they had her carry it. That's probably the reason. But with the thieves themselves denying the crime, 
They haven't found the jewels and there's no fucking witnesses. It's a really weak case. So bail is set super low. So Murphy and Kuhn can get out and just keep kind of gallivanting around Miami oh and God. fly to New York for their court dates. But since it's a movie, enter a relentless Manhattan prosecutor and assistant district attorney in charge of the case. Who? Maurice Najari. Maurice Najari? No. He's a by-the-books prosecutor and a yes. fierce cross-examiner. His regular courtroom was known among opposing defense attorneys as the snake pit. Oh, wait. Najari is a snake pit? It's like almost like... Yeah, the Geary from Harry Potter. <laughs> Creepy, <laughs> right? This is—it's too much. Do you think J.K. knew? Do you think she knew about it? She read this and then wrote that. So That's he it. takes the theft really personally because New York's his fucking city, and it's an yeah. affront to his city. And he's super irritated at the boys' behavior and their arrogance and how they're being portrayed as these sort of like hot celebrities. God and damn, heroes. why isn't this a film? I'm so confused. We should look because it probably is. It probably is. It's not like Ocean's Eleven. Like- <laughs> <laughs> they're like, this is what Ocean's Eleven is based on. Um, so. He basically, his tactic is he gets that he can't, he's, it's been dead-ended to try to get them for this jewel thing right now. But he's like, I've got to get them somehow. So he's looking around for crimes they've committed um, that would necessitate a higher bail so that they would have to stay in jail. So a few things happen after that. December 13th, Murphy's longtime girlfriend that had picked him up at the airport in Miami, Bonnie Lou Satura, 22, Gets super depressed because he starts seeing another girl. Oh, and Bonnie. she is found dead You're in her ju- suburban Miami <gasps> apartment. Wait, An apparent what? suicide. Oh, Bonnie, no, you're too good for him. But on January 2nd, like a month later, Murphy and Clark get arrested for a Miami burglary because they're still doing garbage like that. But they lead police on a mile-long chase in a car that's registered to her. So oh, they can shit. be, they're arraigned on the burglary charge, but, and they make a thousand dollars bail in time to fly to a New York hearing, but then there's a trap there. The jury has found is a case to press against them, which is Ava Gabor and her husband, stockbroker Richard Brown, had been pistol whipped at the Racket Club in Miami on January 4th, 1964. And what? her $25,000 diamond ring was stolen. And Ava Gabor's in New York when they go for this hearing and picks them out of a lineup. Picks Alan and Jack out of a lineup. No. So now they have the bail on- gets raised to $150,000. Which is like a million. Like a million billion. So they're suddenly willing to negotiate, which they had been silent before. By the way, side note, Gabor would later decline to press charges because she said her she was too busy shooting Green Acres in L.A. But <laughs> by her identifying them at the time, it was enough to it let the authorities put them. Yeah. yeah, and they put them in the tombs in downtown Manhattan. So they're like not cut out for that, these boys. So, OK, Kuhn approached Mr. Najari and he's like, I will help you get these jewels back for leniency. And Najari wants those fucking jewels back. So he's like, all right. But 
Now he has to propose this crazy idea to his boss where he's basically like, I know these guys are in jail and not allowed to leave. I would like to sneak Alan Kuhn out of New York jail and go to Miami with him with three other detectives to track down the fenced jewels. Okay, so this is catch me if you can. Is that the wrong? Sort of, maybe. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah. It's like Ocean's Eleven. Catch me if you can. And just like that thing you do. It's that thing you do. <laughs> that's all it's missing is music. Um, so I'll, we'll add that in later. The jewels have been fenced, which means they've been hidden, like basically given to a second party to sell them to anyone that would buy Stolen goods. Um, collectors I don't know if I would things. say that's that's not like a black market situation. That's it's a black not. market situation. Yeah, but they call it being fenced, which I didn't know what that meant. So he's gonna track. He wants to track the jewels by going with Alan and Alan, hopefully leading him to where they might be. And his boss is like, "This idea is bananas." But, but it's just go so ahead. bananas, it might, it might just work. work. But the stakes are weird because you can't like really do it legally or like sanction it appropriately. So the boss is like, okay, you can do it. But if you don't get the jewels, don't come back. Maybe go to like Argentina. Like we can't see you again if you don't get results. Kuna Najari fly to Miami and during the trip, Alan Kuhn, like, repeatedly tries to bribe Mr. Najari to drop the charges and let him escape. He's like, I'll take care of you. You'll be rich. Like, let me escape. And Najari's like, um, no. Hard pass. Um, but they kind of get this. I, this oh God, the whole thing is a television show. When they land, they get, like, a regular car rental. And Alan Kuhn gives Najari, like, a hard time about it and is like live a little you know so they end up changing the rental to a red Cadillac convertible wait this is what the fuck is going on so over several days Alan Kuhn is saying that he's negotiating for the return of the jewels and they have to keep moving around so they're going from motel to motel what they're really trying to do is evade the press because it's not cool that Alan Kuhn's out of jail That's not okay. So they're really trying to evade the press. And at one point to avoid them, they end up having to jump out the back window of a motel. And Kuhn is like super impressed by Najari's agility and is like, oh, man, I wish I knew you earlier in life. You'd have been a really good jewel thief. (laughs) Najari's like, ha ha. okay. Like, I feel like his heart's getting a little warmed. I don't know. I I made that part up. But yeah. At one point, Najari puts on like a mask and snorkel and he's looking for the jewels in the Biscayne Bay near Mr. Kuhn's boat. I mean, this is incredible. This trip is nuts. Finally, Kuhn arranges to pick up the jewels in a locker in a Miami bus terminal from somebody that he had fenced them to. They go to the locker and they get out two soaking wet pouches drenched in salt water. So Najari was on the right track with his snorkeling idea. And they get back on the plane with these wet sacks of jewels that I think uh, I remember Najari puts them in like a barf bag on the plane. So bizarre. In the end, less than half of the two dozen stolen gems were recovered. But they did receive back the Star of India, which was the 
the big deal. And eventually, actually, the ruby that I told you about gets recovered, but it was ransomed for $25,000 by an insurance millionaire, John D. MacArthur, who's the same MacArthur that establishes the foundation that funds the fellowships, like the Genius Grants, the MacArthur. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, I'm going to buy the jewel back. Somebody put a ransom on it. I'm going to pay $25,000 to get it, and they get it back. So 10 of the 24 Holy most valuable shit. gems are back in museum custody, and the rest are never found. MacArthur, after negotiating privately with the floor defense that he pays to get the stone, mm-hmm. he finds it in a telephone booth near Palm Beach. That's where they put the stone for him to pick up. God, should we just like go to like random sort of weird places and just like and then fi- try to find shit just like hope, that? Just hope like hope that someone hope to put ourselves in the middle of a very dangerous situation. Yeah, definitely. Like, let's Why do not? it. I mean, it's quarantine. You know what I mean? Like dream. It's big. quarantine. Go look for. You know what, guys? It's quarantine. <laughs> go look for gems. Just do it. You never know. In exchange for cooperating with the recovery, Murphy and his partners get light sentences. They serve two years each on Rikers. That's after, it? Yep. Ah, it's stolen jewels. I think everyone had a good time. Roger <laughs> Clark becomes a bartender and a golf pro. He settles near Mount Snow, Vermont, and he spends 15 years working at a French restaurant called Le Petit Chef. And his boss says of him, I would trust Roger with my life. He was so law-abiding that he wouldn't jaywalk. And then she said, he drove so slowly, I used to say to him, you drove the getaway car? <laughs> So cute, right? Um, oh, Roger but Clark, it's not just like all wrong guys. Sunshine and roses. Okay? No, because like poor Bonnie. This, I feel bad for Bonnie right now. Poor lots of people because in November, two secretaries run off with four hundred and eighty-eight thousand dollars worth of negotiable securities. Terry Kent Frank was twenty-three. Annalie Maria Moan was twenty-one, and they took a bus cross-country and checked into a tourist hotel. Uh, in Bal Harbor. Kuhn and Murphy each claim they knew them and they each claim the other one made introductions. So no one wants to say like how they knew them. But once acquainted, the two secretaries had moved into Murphy's place because they were unable to afford their Florida hotel after five days. So Murphy's tied up with these two girls that do this crime. Mm-hmm. And he says the girls were starting to get antsy. So we went for a boat ride. And on that boat ride more than 40 years ago, Murphy says there were five passengers on the boat, the two girls, himself, a guy named Griffin, and a mysterious guy that may or may not have been there named Rusty. Murphy says that he was at the wheel and a fight broke out. And one of the girls said, if we don't get our money, we're going to go to the FBI. And the next thing that happens is the two women's bikini-clad bodies are discovered submerged in the Whiskey Creek Canal, weighed down with concrete blocks. So they'd been stabbed in the stomach and their skulls had been smashed. Murphy insists to this day that this guy Rusty killed them. But there's been witnesses that say they only saw four people get on the boat. No one knows this Rusty person. He feels a little bit made up. Wow. Either way, at at worst, Murphy killed them. At best, he definitely helped dispose of the corpses. And he said it was an absolute nightmare. It wasn't part of the plan. 
I've got dead bodies in the back of the boat. You get rid of the situation as best you can. After they died, so they committed this crime that he was likely tied up in. He and this guy Griffin and him have the money. Mm -hmm. And they're fighting about who the the girls are fighting about wanting the money or they're going to go to the FBI and then they end up dead. Those are that's like those are the facts. So Murphy and Coon were both on this boat. No, Coon wasn't. Coon wasn't. Coon wasn't part of this. Okay. Coon just the women. Coon wasn't part of this. Okay. And he was never under suspicion for being part of it. But after this goes down, Murphy then does another, they called it a flamboyant robbery, which I don't know what that is, but I I like it. Well, I think we have, hold on, let me adjust something. Murphy participates in this final robbery at a waterfront home owned by an Olive Woford, who's a wealthy widow. So he ends up getting indicted for both that robbery and the Whiskey Creek murders, and he pleads insanity. And he's committed to a mental hospital, but then the judge is like, uh, no, you're definitely fit to stand trial. And in 1969, Murphy and that other guy, Griffin, who was on the boat, are found guilty of first-degree murder, and they're sentenced to life in prison. Murphy also gets another life sentence for the Wolford robbery. But when he's in prison, he, like, turns to Jesus. He develops a ministry. Um, and he now actually, he's out and he lives in Tampa. And he... I thought he got a life sentence. Yeah, but he's out. <laughs> I don't understand. When people you get, a, get life... a life sentence and then, um, I don't know, he was, became like a minister in prison. And they were like, this guy seems okay. Like, you know what? He's just fine by me. Yeah. So that's what happened to him. He's out. He's in Tampa. Alan Kuhn was convicted of conspiring to receive and transport stolen securities and did one year stint in a California federal prison. He was never accused of knowing shit about those uh, Whiskey Creek murders. Mm -hmm. Also, they're just they're a little different. Like, okay, Murphy has his own website talking about his role in the museum robbery. And Alan is the opposite. He basically did everything he could to be invisible afterwards. He became a prop master for movies in L.A. Then he moved in with his wife and went to Missouri. And he opened up a topsoil and landscaping business. His phone is unlisted. He lives in a tiny mountain town. You're saying that this is Ozarks? Yes. (laughs) This is Ozark. Okay, Um, well, I'm just like, I just don't know what show it is. I know, it's got to be one. So Vanity Fair, the article that I read was written in 2014, and they were interviewing him at age 76. And it said that he was in really good health, and he had really laid back demeanor and was like a believer in new age spirituality. I don't, I actually, I don't know what happened to him after this Vanity Fair interview. I couldn't find anything more recent because that's not really his style. It was kind of a big deal. He gave them the interview because he doesn't do interviews and he doesn't right. talk about this stuff. But when the, he was interviewed, it turns out that um, Coon and Murphy are actually in contact and they do reminisce a little about it. Uh, actually, do you know what he does as of 2014, at least, or as of t- 2007? What? Coon is actually, um, he grows medical marijuana. God love him. Yeah. Because his um, wife died. He's a widower now. And he's like growing marijuana and, and being new age which spiritual. Which one was Bonnie Singh? Was Bonnie Singh James Murphy? Or was it 
was Alan, Alan Coon. You want to like Alan I because like he's not Alan, the murderer, but he's not you the murderer, can't but I th- totally uh, like him because he. I think made he's a still a bad of, guy. I think he's still a bad guy. He, he made a lot of poor choices. The person um, I like, Roger Clark. Roger Clark, we're gonna we're gonna forgive. Basically, Murphy complains that Alan can't remember anything. I think it's all the pot, probably, but he can't remember <laughs> anything when they're like talking about the old days. And Coon says, "Of Coon says of Jack Murphy that he just needs to make every story a little better." So it's like Alan's like, "Meh, I don't really remember." And Murphy's got the vibe of like, and then this really happened, and then tell. this happened. Yeah, really makes everything really theatrical. Um, it just goes to show you that like the twenties is a special time, and you're not always best friends with the people you know in your twenties. Like that's I think the lesson we're learning is that people change, people grow. Some people Look become murderers. Some people become really slow driving, nice, trustworthy men. Some people get married and start growing medical marijuana you just don't know really sky's the limit sky is the limit star of india might be the limit um but to this day we should go uh, we should go reopens because the star of india the delong star ruby and the midnight star all beautiful gems are displayed in the natural history museum's first floor morgan hall of minerals let's go we have to go see that robert the doll we're going to go to the place, um, the Preppy Killer. Where's that place that you went to? Dorian's. We're going to go to Dorian's. We have like a whole, t- we're going to do a tour to TDC. A murder tour. We're going to do it really fun. Let's do it. Let's do like a TDC bar crawl. Okay. I love that idea. Oh my God, that's so fun. Wait, that's a really good idea. I and really we make like you scale the outside of the Natural History Museum. And almost fall. While playing yeah, Mission Impossible pigeons. Oh! <gasps> That's so good. You have to sign a hell of a waiver for Isn't doing that a this. Really fun. St- I know it's got some sad elements and some sad murders. I could have done without the murders. I liked. The I know heist. it's like without the, the murder, murder, they're almost you like it's almost really. Funny. Well, and you're able to like them a lot. Yeah, uh, we can't. They're cr- they're bad guys for some of the shit they did. It's like I, I don't know. Heists don't make me mad, which is why I like them, but murder does. So then it's tricky. <laughs> It's really tricky to feel empathetic. Thanks for sharing that story. That's a crazy story. Isn't it a crazy, crazy story? I can't wait to work on this screenplay with you. I can't wait to pitch it. Oh, my God. I do want to Google if it's a movie. It has to be. It just Listen, means- I just looked this up, and I want to tell you the movie options. There's a PBS movie called Stolen. No. Or Show. Okay. No. And that, that will tell us some of the story about... It, it says it brings the audience on a journey to understand not just the crime, but the nature of beauty itself. I'm sorry. You know what? I don't think that's right, actually. <laughs> but then there's, because I'm like, well, it doesn't really say that it's about. It's about, well, it's actually about snorkeling. They talk about the reefs in Miami and protecting. The you know what? That's not what it's about. I think I just led you way astray. Well, anytime in anytime a movie goes, we take the audience on a journey. I'm a little suspect. Don't go on the journey. I was wrong. Murph the Surf is a 1975 movie based on a true story. Details of the daring theft of the J.P. Morgan Jewel Collection. It's a disposable 70s heist movie eclipsed by many better ones. Hmm. (laughs) The reviews are in, folks. Three stars. (laughs) Three stars. That does seem weird. 
like make a good movie about this maybe we should do it quinn think somebody definitely owns the rights to this story they'd be a damn fool not to and it's and not us oh my god thanks for sharing that Absolutely. We're going to have to commit our own heist to make a movie about. <gasps> okay. And it's I also, I was going to say, left. the only thing I was thinking about was like, ugh, I don't really want to, I don't know how I feel about writing. Like, I would prefer a female heist if we're writing. Or you want to do an Oceans, <laughs> what was the female Oceans? It just was like Oceans 11. Oceans Women. It was just women, women in Oceans. I, the thing is, is I don't necessarily. Beaches. <laughs> Beaches 11. <laughs> that's the female one that would have been a really that's a missed Wait, opportunity that's well okay it's not a missed opportunity because we could take it beaches 11 <laughs> we should do that that's we're doing it so brilliant okay let's write it it'll be like okay we'll, we'll use some high stuff that we've learned and we'll create our own oh my god i can't wait me neither i'm so excited <gasps> when are we writing let's get the google doc <laughs> get it up and running <laughs> folks <laughs> Hey, dear, dear readers. readers, thanks for joining us. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram. Please be a donor. Please go to the website and hit the button love if you want to give us money. Hit the button learn because every week you could learn something different. And I think this week is the story of Cassiopeia or something cool. <laughs> it's, it's, it's about a constellation. I forget that's which. This, that's that week. We're going to be airing this in like three weeks. So it's so going to be something new. So you already missed Cassiopeia. Don't miss what's there what's now. What's coming next. Who knows? Dear readers, we love you. Bye.